we continue our study of Romans tonight. Uh, we're still in um, Romans 8, uh, verse 32, and I, and I want to remind you of what I uh, warned you about, that is, what I was up to. You know, we're, we're a couple of weeks out from Easter. Easter, um, I think, falls on the 16th, and so we've only got tonight and one more Wednesday night, and then the next Wednesday night we won't meet because we move it to Thursday night, the, the night uh, of the Last Supper and the night that Christ was betrayed. We'll meet together uh, on that Thursday night, called by many, Monday, Thursday, and we'll have pie, homemade pie uh, afterwards. Um, just We'll meet here at 7, we'll have a service, and then meet over here for, um, for pie. So, uh, what I'm trying to do is just concentrate our, our attention for three weeks on verse 32. And the reason that I'm uh, concentrating on verse 32 is because of the substance of the text, if you'll note, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? At the center of that text is the, is the uh, reference to the father giving up the son. Of course, a, re- a clear reference, an unmistakable reference to uh, the crucifixion. Um, and uh, the Father's uh, work in that. So uh, because we're, we're moving towards the, cru- the crucifixion, I just thought it might be nice just to expand our, our scope of uh, discussions about this thing known in theological terms as the atonement. All right? So last week, what I was trying to um, establish in your minds uh, was that the most strategic contribution to your own sense of security is, is a knowledge, is an awareness, is a confidence, is a conviction that you are loved by God. I'm saying that the, the primary element that contributes to your sense of safety and security is a knowledge, is a conviction that you, yes, you, yes, you, even you are loved by this God. And then I went on to add, you might remember my, my wonderful little piece of... Um, um, I, I don't like that one. I guess I will. Um, that, the, that the love of God uh, leads to security. Uh, that is, I, I feel confident that my eternity is safe. If I am, the, the more I am aware that I'm loved, the more secure I feel. And the more secure I feel, the, uh, the, the more likely I am to have a passion for holy living. And so I, I tried to point out if A equals B and B equals C, then... Then, then C equals A, that is, a, an awareness and a consciousness of the love of God contributes to my overall sense of passion and interest uh, in holy living, a, a life conformed to the image of Christ. Of, of Christ. Um, the staff and I, we the staff, get together on Wednesday afternoons, and we're studying a book together. Uh, it's a book called, um, uh, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, <laughs> and um, and it opens up with this interesting story. It's from a movie, and I forget the name of the movie, but uh, this guy is driving his Lexus, and, and uh, he, is, he uh, has some car, oh, he gets lost, and he makes a few wrong turns, and he ends up in the hood. I mean, in the scary, scary hood. And uh, right in the middle of the scary, scary hood, his car breaks down. And, uh, he, you know, as he gets out of the car and tries to check into the engine, people start coming out of the woodwork. And, um, uh, and he's on his cell phone trying to call somebody to come tow his car and all that business. And, and um, uh, the, the tow truck finally gets there, and it's, 
it's a man who's driving this tow truck, and, and he finally comes up there. And by the time they get in there, the people in the hood are beginning to steal his tires, um, you know, rough him up, and, and take everything he's got. And the guy that's driving the tow truck comes up to the guy who's kind of in charge of all this uh, rough, uh, this <laughs> um, criminal behavior. And he says, now, man, let me tell you, it just ain't supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to be able to come over here and hook up that car to my truck and take it up. And this guy's supposed to be, it ain't supposed to be this way. Anyway, the book is an illustration of why it ain't the, why it ain't the right way. And it's called, the subtitle is, A Breviary of Sin. That's what we're discussing. That's what we're uh, talking about in, on Wednesday afternoons. Is, but anyway, having said all that, uh, we, we were in chapter 2 today. And uh, there's, a, there's about three sentences that I want to read you. In recognition of this little principle right here, okay, I just, um, I think it was Randy Ray who pointed, maybe it wasn't, but anyway, I forget who pointed this out, but just listen to this. Since faith fastens on God's benevolence, you know, this stuff over here, (laughs) faith fastens on God's benevolence, it yields gratitude, which in turn sponsors risk-taking in the service of others. Grateful people want to let themselves go. Faithful people dare to do it. Listen to this sentence, guys. People tethered to God by faith can let themselves go because they know they will get themselves back. (laughs) People tethered to God. Isn't that a beautiful state? I mean, I mean, do you feel tethered to God? Well, it, the, the more you understand that indeed you are loved, the more tethered. And those are the people who are willing to fling themselves. Those are the people who are willing to take risks. Those are the people who are willing to give themselves away, knowing they'll get themselves back because they're conscious of being tethered. I mean, do you in, in your whole sense of... Being a believer, is that a part of it? I mean, do you feel tethered? Oh, I hope you do. But it's those people who are the most prone, the most likely to fling themselves at holy living. So all I'm saying, guys, is, and I said uh, very lengthily last week, that this is not some idle discussion about some lofty theological view. What it is, is a very practical understanding that leads to a whole different way to approach life. That's what I was trying to do, at least in part, last week. But then also, I I suggested that the evidence or the example of God's love that Paul gives to us is in verse 32 when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Um... That is, in the mind of Paul, the illustration that God gave his own son. Now, there's a couple of things I want to say about just that. First of all, gang, you need to note that in verse 32, the focus is not on the son. The focus is on the father. This is the, that is, the cross is the action of the father. It is not the action of the Son so much, nor is it the action of men. You know, I know this is going to age me, and, and sometimes my illustrations are probably so uh, hackneyed 
that uh, they missed the audience, but surely some of you remember uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Now that was, I mean, I won't ask you to raise your hands because it will, you will date yourself, but surely you remember, and there's this, this wonderful, passionate uh, song um, where, um, it's, I was going to say Virgin Mary, it's not, it's Mary Magdalene who sings this song about um, how did he possibly come to this? I mean, he was a good man. He was such a good man, and, and things just kind of went sour, and, and you, know, it, it, you know, things spun out of control, and, 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 and he didn't mean to do this, and all of a sudden, look what happened. He went out and got himself crucified. Gang, that's not what happened. That is the, the, the perspective of Jesus Christ Superstar, but it's not the perspective of the New Testament. What is going on in Calvary? God does something. That is the Father. Guys, listen, listen to this. You don't need to turn here. This is, um, this is Isaiah 53, which is such a wonderful passage. But um, uh, it's verse 10. I, I, I'm tempted to ask you to go there. But listen, yet, I tell you what, I tell you what, maybe this is a lesson that we might do. Turn to Isaiah 53 real quick. And if you've been in my systematics class, I've done this before you, but I don't think I've done it in here. Sorry to slow us down, but... Um, I'm good at that. Isaiah 53, verse 10. This is a suffering servant. This is probably the most messianic passage in the entire Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's right up there with John 3. And, you know, I mean, in terms of messianic quality, it's the, it's the top dog in the Old Testament. It's, it, it's where Handel got most of his uh, great Aurea, Aurea the uh, Messiah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of it. Anyway, but I want you to notice in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Okay? Can you keep your finger there real quick? And turn over to Psalm 110. This is going to have, this has purpose, I promise. What's the point, Jimmy? We'll get to it, I promise. Keep your hand in Isaiah 53. Um, notice in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. You notice that the term Lord is found there twice. You see that? But they're different. You see, one Lord looks like one thing and one Lord looks like another thing. Uh, What's the difference? Well, that's certainly true, but that's not what I wanted to get to just yet. Uh, Look at just the, the, the surface of the words. What's the difference in the words? One is... All capitalized and the other is all caps. What's going on here, guys? What the the English translation is trying to represent to you is that in the Hebrew, there are two different terms there. That's not the same Hebrew term. The the word that you find capitalized, L-O-R-D, L-O-R-D, is is an entirely different term than what you find in that that first L capital L, the capital O capital. Because that term, when you see Lord in all caps, what you've got is a, what is called the Hebrew tetragram, yod Hey bab Hey, which is Yahweh, Jehovah. When you find the Lord in all caps, this is what's there. This is the term that Judaism wouldn't even touch, it wouldn't handle, wouldn't say, wouldn't speak. And every time somebody was transcribing it as a scribe, they would write it and then have to go take a bath. Or take a bath, then go write it. But, but the, guys, go back to Isaiah 53 now. 
And here's the point. Notice in Isaiah 53, you're going to see that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, who's that Lord there? Who? Yehovah! Yahweh! God the Father! And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? What was going on at Calvary's cross pleased Him! It was His will to bruise Him and crush Him. At the center of this action of Romans 8.32, ladies and gentlemen, is not man. It's not the devil. It's not the Roman authorities. It's not Herod. It's not the Jews. It's not the Sanhedrin. It's the Father. He didn't spare Him, but He gave Him up. It's the Father who is in the front of this whole scene, guys, known as Calvary. Now, so the... Moving on. Consequently, the cross is the grand display of God's love for His people. Because behind what's going on stands the Father. That wasn't an accident there, guys. You know, Jesus comes to the last uh, few hours of His life and He looks to His twelve and He says... My hour has come. On numerous occasions. Remember when he goes to the wedding in John chapter 2 and, and his, wife, his mother comes up and says, Son, we got a little problem here at the wedding. In terms of tragedy, this is way down on the, on the, on the tragedy scale. But, uh, you know, the host has run out of wine. <laughs> you know, this is really bad. He invited all his friends. He's got nothing to drink for these people. You know, could you do something? And what does Jesus say to her? Woman, my hour has not yet come. And then the mother looks at, it, looks at the, the servants and says, just do what he tells you. And he goes and turns the water to wine. But he says, my hour is not. But then later on in the New Testament, he says, my hour is here. It's time. Who architected that hour? Yahweh. That's the father in charge of this, this thing, guys. It is, um, it is the grand display of the love of God, yes, but it is more than that. And that's really where we want to spend our next two Wednesday nights. Uh, I think most of us know that it is the grand display of the love of God, but it's more than that. Gang, listen to me. You know this statement. You know this statement uh, that Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He ain't talking to Elijah. He's talking to the Father and He says, why have you forsaken me? Now listen, every piece of theology since that moment has been designed to try and answer that question. Why? Why has the Father forsaken Him? Everything that you know about whether you're baptized or whether you're this kind of mill or that kind of mill, um, that's, your, that's all wonderful and those are important things and I'm not, I shouldn't appreciate them. I don't mean to do that. But, but guys, at the heart of everything that is rightly theological is an attempt to answer why did the Father, why, why, why did the Father forsake Him? Consequently, everything that we say about this is important. The words that we choose... By the way, um, the cults use our words. 
um, things like rebirth. Oh, you can find that in just about every cult there is. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a <laughs> only important to use the right words. It's, it's very critical that we understand what is meant by the words. Um, now, here, here's the ones that I've chosen. That is, try, it's, it's somewhat of a, 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 trying to summarize the atonement is to call it the substitutionary. Substitutionary atonement. Now, I know you've heard that before, but what, what's in that? Um, there's a couple of things, guys, that I want you to see. Um, first of all, there is a word that I mentioned last week, vicarious, which is almost a synonym for this term. It's not quite, but it's almost a synonym. Um, vicarious simply means life for life. Um, that is, there's been um, a, a life of a victim has been substituted for the life of the offerer. Guys, if, if you get bogged down in your Old Testament and you think, why are they doing all this sacrificing stuff and they're still in all this blood is up their ankles and they've got to do all What's going on there? Well, there's a lot that's going on there, but one of the primary things that's going on is to give you a sense of this term. The whole Old Testament cultus is to give you some kind of grasp of what it means to say, we're going we're gonna to impose guilt on the victim um, or, or the, the, the substitute is going to become the victim in the place of the offerer. And by the way, guys, I, I don't know whether you've ever seen this. I, I bet you have, but let me just read it to you. This is in Deuteronomy 12, um, verse 23, it, which says, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You know, why, why, wasn't, why, why weren't they supposed to eat blood? Because in the Jewish cultus, ladies and gentlemen, blood was life. And so it wasn't so important about the carcass of the dead thing, but you had to, you had to be very careful on what you do with the blood. It was an exchange of life, blood, for the life of the offeror. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is in view in this word, guys. It is Christ, what is intended is Christ dying for us instead of us. Look at the text. That is Romans 8, 24, uh, 28, 32, I mean, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us. There it is, guys. It's found elsewhere. It's found in uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's found again in that chapter in verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is a substitute on which the guilt is laid instead of the guilty party. Now, guys, remember the us for whom Christ did give himself, or the Father gave him. We weren't a lot of bunch of nice people. Romans 5 says he dies for the ungodly. 
So vicarious simply means life for life. Now, I said it was almost a, um, a synonym. Here's why it's not quite a synonym. It tells you what the action is, but it doesn't tell you who did it. It doesn't tell you, vicarious doesn't, vicarious doesn't tell you who the substitute is. Um, who is the substitute? Guys, um, I forget when it was, 15, no, it's earlier than that. Anselm wrote his massive piece that's still being studied today entitled Cordeus Homo. Um, why God, man, or why did God have to become man? This whole thick volume is simply trying to ask, answer, who is this substitute and why did he have to be him? Um, who is the substitute? Well, um, John 3.16 says, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's who the, the, um, the substitute is. Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 5. Uh, that's, that John 3 says his only begotten son. Our text in Romans 8 says his own son. That's who the substitute is. But who's that? Now, guys, stay with me. Uh, John 5, verse 18. This is in the early days of Christ's ministry here, and this uh, event takes place that gets pretty scary. Verse 18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Okay, Jews, why are you so upset about Why do you want to kill us, Jesus, huh? Well, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus does miracles on the Sabbath? I mean, it's like he, he could do it on, on Monday but, or on Sunday, but he decided to do it on Saturday. He's got to do it on the Sabbath. Why? I mean, again and again and again, he's healing on the Sabbath. It seems like he's just forcing it at him. I don't know. But, but anyway, um, he, this is why we want to kill him. Not only that he heals on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. He was saying, he was saying he's the son of God. Now, notice that last clause. By calling himself the father's son, he makes himself equal with God. Now, guys, um, you know, if you've ever been... Uh, um, uh, disturbed by a visit from Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, they want to argue with you about whether the New Testament teaches that Jesus was deity. That is, did Jesus ever claim to be God? You know, I, I think it's absolutely absurd to have to debate it. But um, they, they are convinced that, uh, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God when he says, I and the Father are one. What he meant is, I and the Father are one in purpose and one in vision and, and one in, you know, camaraderie. But he never claimed to be God. Well, let me just say you this, ladies and gentlemen. Forget John 10. Just go right here, because I'll tell you, his Jewish audience knew what he was saying. His Jewish audience says, oh, he's calling himself the Son of God, which makes him equal to God. I don't understand why the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses don't see it, but the Jews sure did. His audience did. They knew what he was claiming. And they wanted to kill him. Because calling himself the Son of God made, made him God. Now, all I'm trying to say is, who is the substitute? The substitute is his only begotten Son, his own Son. Um, God. That's who the substitute is. The substitutionary atonement means life for life. It also means that the substitute 
is God. And by the way, this term, his own son, um, you are called sons too, or also. Um, there are many of our types. But the New Testament never says about us what the New Testament says about him. By the way, in verse 14 of chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. But this is his own son, his only begotten son. There's a lot of adopted sons, but he never said about me. He comes to Jesus and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's never said that about me. I don't blame him. Um, Listen to him. He's never, by the way, God has never spoken to you saying, listen to him. But he did say about that other son, listen to him. Now, all I'm trying to do is make a distinction between Jesus' sonship and ours. Guys, here is the, here is the um, summary, I guess. Here is the, 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 um, the summation um, of God's love. Listen. Um, the love of God is seen in that he inflicts the penalty for sin by bearing it. How does God save us and satisfy himself simultaneously? By self-substitution. Divine love triumphed over divine justice by divine self-sacrifice. You know, guys, back in 66 when I was a um, bell-bottom wearing um, um, SAE on the campus of the University of Tennessee thinking I was a pretty hot number, um, some, I was kind of a religionist. I've told you about that before, but... Um, um, something very significant happened. I even knew about it in 66. I didn't know what it meant. didn't really care, but I was really interested in the SAE part on the, 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 the weekends. But, but there was something that happened, the, and it made the front of Time magazine in 19, I think it was April. In fact, I've got a copy of it. I got the, I've got it laminated, in fact. Uh, it's a big red front page, the, the front cover of uh, Time magazine, and it says this, God is dead. created a huge flap. Uh, they even started God is dead societies or the death of God societies. Um, and it was all this clamor. You know, um, uh, Emory Canwell Seminary in Atlanta was right in the thick of it. Joseph Altizer, a uh, big proponent. I mean, a lot of discussion and, you know, the whole jerk. Well, let me tell you something. God is dead. He died on Calvary. And that has been the absolute scandal of the Christian church ever since. Gang, listen. You know, you and I are living in a pluralistic society that is absolutely going to choke us into the grave. If you've got high schoolers, I plead with you to send them with us to the apologetics on the beach. <laughs> just, a little, just a little commercial. But... Um, we are choking, we are drowning in a sea of relativism and pluralism and naturalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but guys, 
the, the very nonsense that is being proposed about religion is not either or, religion is both and. Do you get that? It's not either or. That is, you can't choose one uh, and say it's more true than the others because they're all equally true and equally beneficial. Gang, listen to me. Nobody, nobody makes the claim that God died but us. Not only that, not only do they not make the claim, they abominate the idea. It is blasphemous to speak of God dying. I read a book um, really last year when I was in the Czech Republic by, uh, I forget the guy's first name, but his last name is Moltmann. And the title of the book is The Crucified God. Gang, only Christianity. I mean, do you, all I'm trying to tell you is if you want to reject the positions of Christianity, please feel free to do so. But don't you understand that only Christianity talks about its founder dying in the place of his followers? That is not simply unique. To call it unique is a vast understatement. It's, it's beyond unique. It is in the mind of Islam. <coughs> it is in the mind of Buddhism. It is blasphemy to speak that way. Islam would never uh, allow that God died because... They don't think he was God. So tell me, how could both of those be true? Gang, it's not both and, it's either or. Now pick your which one, but pick one of them. But the only world religion that talks or that has as its center the self-substitution of deity in the place of, instead of, the guilty party is Christianity. And therein lies the beauties of the love of God that divine love overcame divine justice by divine Self-sacrifice. I say again. God doesn't love me because Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me because God loves me. Those are two different propositions. Give it some thought. Let's pray. Our Father, I I do thank you for the privilege that is mine to try and uh, encourage your people over the knowledge that they are loved in Christ. That is a privilege. And I thank you that I get to do it. But I'm not the only one that gets to, Father. There are numerous gifted people in this church and in this room who, who also get to tell co-workers and family members and neighbors that in Christ Jesus, God loves everlastingly, safely, securely, 
eternally. So, Father, um, in the midst of all the claims that are being made on mankind today, this one, this claim of what Jesus Christ has accomplished is a claim that stands alone. That Jesus Christ has accomplished the salvation of His people because God the Father loved those people. Use that, O God, to tether us to Yourself all over again. And might our lives begin to reflect the glorious sense of being tethered to the God who made the heavens and the earth. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.